For those who don't know me, my name's Kyle. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And today uh, we're continuing on in our series, Into the Wilderness. And I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 20. If you've got a Bible, feel free to pull it out. If you don't own a Bible, you can download one on your phone or there's free ones out in the front entrance. We'd love for you to take one with you because everything we do here at a church comes out of what God has given us. And we believe that The Bible is God's word to us. So let's listen to it today, and it starts right away with the words God spoke in chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is within them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and spoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or surely we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, We just thank you for this word to us, Lord. We thank you that uh, you have spoken directly to your people many times and that you've given us your word to be able to hear from you time and time again. And God, uh, I pray that today for those of us who have been in the church a long time, we would see this with fresh eyes. For those of us who are new, Lord, would we not see this uh, list of your commands in a legalistic way, but would we uh, receive it with the heart that it is for our good. And God, would you just speak clearly to each one of us today where we're at? Would you help us to just receive what you would have for us? Lord, if there's anything that I'm going to preach that that shouldn't be said or would stand in the way, Lord, would you remove that from, from my mouth or from the minds of anyone who's here? And Lord God, would we just hear clearly through your Holy Spirit speaking to us? And God, would that just glorify you? And Lord, would we have much to praise you for by the end of our time here today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, isn't it interesting how different people can view the same rules differently? 
Take, for instance, this sign, please stay on the path. If we're honest, some of us would interpret this sign a little bit differently than others. Are there any people in here who would hold fastidiously to that rule? You'd never go off the path? I mean, there's some of us, if we saw this sign while hiking, we would be terrified the whole time anytime we got to a junction. We'd worry, is this the path going this way or, or is that where people have gone off path and, and now I'm going to do the same and, and trudge through and, and wreck the beautiful, pristine nature? Who here would maybe say, this isn't a rule, it's just a suggestion? Yeah, that's fair. Good. Thanks for those honest answers, right? There's no, there's no fines. There's no law, bylaw number under this. There's, there's nothing that tells us that it's a strict command. I mean, it says, just please, like, it would be courteous of you. Could you? Are there others who would view this as a rule, but you'd kind of view it with sort of the, there's a spirit to this that we're going to try to lower impact, but, but really I'm not going to be all that worried if I accidentally step off? Who's here? Show hands. A few more of us. You know, we all have these different approaches when we see signs posted or when we've been told rules, whether it's from our parents growing up, whether it's in the places we work, maybe those traffic signs, you know, a red light is a suggestion, not a rule. You know, I'm not saying that, but, you know, some of us view rules in different ways. And it's, it's helpful to know that when we come to something like this list that we find in Scripture that's full of God's commands. In the reading I just did, we read what is probably considered the most well-known rule set in all of history. We know it as what? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Words, or Decalogue as they were originally known, were given by God as ten statements that he wanted his people to follow through. They're lessons that he gave to the Israelite people following their exit from slavery after over 400 years. And now, still to this day, some 4,000 plus years later, we still approach this list given by God in many sorts of different ways. Some of us view it very legalistically. Others kind of approach it in sort of a, ah, those are good suggestions. And there's all sorts of different ways that people read it in between. But no matter how we read it, we often come to this place where we say, but why? But why all these rules? Why does God give these commands? Do I really need to follow them? Is there really any benefit at all behind this? And sadly, with that comes a whole lot of misconceptions. There's the misconception of why God gave this list. Some people go, well, God's kind of a cosmic killjoy. He likes to rob us of the things we want to do because he's mean. There's others who view this as sort of a, a list of do's and don'ts that were meant to put a weight on us to keep us in line. Still others can approach things like this like a, a checklist. A checklist of if I could do these things, then maybe I could be right in God's sight. And maybe then I could work my way into heaven or I could experience some more of who God is. And as I'll get to in a few moments as we go through this, those things are, couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, they really miss what God's intent is as he gave this list 
to his people. And so today what we're going to do is we're, we're not going to go into the details of every single command. You can go back and you can read this list and it's pretty straightforward what God's saying. But what I want us to do instead is sort of to pick up on the bigger picture, the context in which we find these commands and what that indicates to us about what they might have been given for so that we can look in a new way, not a legalistic way, but in a fresh way at how these commands can be used for our benefit and for our spiritual growth as we try to know Jesus more, as we try to follow him, as we try to emulate him in the world around us. So let's start right away with the context in which we find these Ten Commandments. Again, it's, it, this is really important because lots of people think of this as a list of the ways to please God, either to get into heaven or perhaps to get God to do what we need him to do. But right off the top, if we actually read all of what was said in this section, we see that that's not the case at all. Right at the beginning in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, this is what God said before he gives a single command. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, when God gave these commands, he didn't give them to his people as a list of, if you do this, you can earn that. You know, they have been in slavery for 420 years at this point. They are struggling. They were frustrated before their release and they had been calling out to God. And God didn't say, here's a list of commands and then I will save you out of slavery. Instead, what he did is he saved his people out of that place of, sa of, of slavery and then said, because I'm your savior, I'm gonna give you a list of things that are good for you. If you read back through the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus, you'd be reminded of the story of what God's done. He saved the, his people by performing the miraculous. He sent uh, Moses and Aaron to send signs to Pharaoh and to his servant. He sent plagues that would beat down Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods so that the people would know, both the Egyptians and Israelites, that he was the one true God. And then he would perform the miraculous of parting the seas so the Israelites could walk across dry land. And then he would close in those seas on their enemies so that they could be freed from slavery. So that they would learn to put their trust in him. And see that what he would prescribe was for their benefit. He'd already given them the Passover and he had said, if you do this, I will save your lives. I'll save the lives of your firstborn son. And when they had obeyed that command, we saw that they were saved, that they were provided for. These commandments then need to be understood in that context, that they were not given for salvation, but they're given to people who have already experienced God's provision in their lives. This is actually the fact that takes place for all of the commands that we see in Scripture. They always come from a place of love, and they're always ultimately tied to what God has done for us and what God wants to do in us and through us and what God wants to bring us into. The commands of God are always for our benefit, but they always come after 
God has already done something incredible, something that should lead us to worship him right from the beginning of scripture, right to the very end. And we know, though, that these aren't just a way to sort of go and wander about. God didn't just say, okay, I've saved you. Now follow this list and go off on your very own way for the rest of history. No, instead what we see is that God has saved the people from a distance and brought them closer to him, and he's trying to help them see how they can stay in proximity to him in a way that they could really know him and understand. In chapter 13, we see that after God led his people into the wilderness, that God became present with them in a pillar of fire and cloud so that he could lead them. In chapter 19, right before what we just read, we see that God's presence has descended on Mount Sinai, the mountain that towers above where they're now camped out trying to figure out how we're going to go about life now as the new people of God. And God's presence has come down, and then this is where God speaks his Ten Commands with his people right there seeing the thunder and the lightning, seeing Moses when he later comes down as a transformed person because of encountering God. The import, these things are all important facts because they reveal to us what God is doing through his commands. They're bringing us into his presence. They're helping us experience and enjoy the benefits that would be had by following the one who can provide our salvation, our direction, a new way of life, even when we feel that we're lost in the wilderness. We see all of these sorts of things, and it should lead us to this question then of asking, well, why then? Like, what, what, why, what is the real good? What is the real benefit? Why should I keep these commands? What, what will come of it? And we, we, we see that explanation all through Scripture, and there's a lot of that written on in the New Testament. But within this context, I, I simply want us to ask those questions without going too deep into the other places of just saying, well, then what are these good for? If they were given for, by God, how do we take them today and see a benefit in our lives? And the first response that I can give to us is that the, the reason we follow these commands and what they're good for is, is that they're given to us to help us flourish, just in life and living. This is probably the most evident thing that we see from the Ten Commandments. Theologian J.I. Packer likens the Ten Commandments to an owner's manual for a car. Anyone read their owner's manual to their car? It's a good idea. You know why you read it? You read it so that you know how to operate it properly. You put in the wrong oil or gas, you wreck your car. You drive it improperly, you're going to end up in a crash. With such a complicated piece of machinery as a car, the owners decided, in their wisdom, we should help people figure out how to operate this thing. In the same way, God looked at humanity that he had created and said, man, this is a pretty complicated thing. And if I just leave people to their own devices, they're going to crash and burn. Maybe I should give them a handbook. Maybe I should help them figure out how to drive through this life in the right way. 
And so he gave these commands. And he gave these commands so that our lives could be ones that are flourishing. We, we need to remember the context of Exodus. God is leading his people from a place of slavery into a place of unity with him. And then he wants to lead them into the promised land where they can flourish with him at the center of everything. And in the same way, while we're not all on our way to the promised land, we are all on our way through life in the presence of God to the place he ultimately wants to take us. I mean, just really stop for a moment and think, what would happen if we actually kept the Ten Commandments? How would that change humanity? I mean, if people stopped lying... Wouldn't that make conversation and business so much more refreshing? I mean, if we could actually take people at their word, we would know how to navigate through things. If we could actually enter into a deal of working with someone or living with someone or, or making some type of transaction and know that we were going to get what we agreed upon, there would be a lot more peace in our lives. Imagine if people stopped with all the adultery. Imagine what would happen would be this massive reduction in the abuse of women and children around the world because they would no longer be seen as commodities. Imagine if you really took and everyone you work with actually took a day off to focus on God, to worship him, to enjoy what he created, we would be a lot more refreshed. We would be healthier and happier. We would have a better sense of balance and well-being as a society as we approach our work week and our family life, and we would see actual refreshing if we followed those kind of commands. I mean, if we did all of those perfectly, it would be amazing. But even if we all just did one, think of how good that would be. If everyone did even one of these things, but especially if we tried to do all of these things, think about how much better of a place we would be. The commandments were given for a flourishing. And as they've done that, the commandments also help us to get a sense of our priorities of how we should structure our lives. Not only do they give us this, this healthy living guideline, but they help us to sort of frame, how should I think? How should I put things in order and structure in my life? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and I actually didn't think about it until someone pointed it out to me one time, but there seems to be a scale of value within the commandments. And I'm not saying that God wants us to, to do one because it's more important than the other, but there is an order in which God gives these things. And there's an order in which these things make sense with one another. Why would I go on not coveting things if I have no reason not to do that? Like, there's not really any negative impact on the world around me if I just want what my neighbor has, if I'm just trying to keep up with the Joneses, but if we put that thing 
in context of the fact that God is the creator and sustainer and provider of the universe and he gives good things to people in a certain pattern and way in which he decides, suddenly it doesn't make me want to covet things. Because then instead what I'm doing is I'm choosing to condemn the good things that God's doing in others' lives while putting down the blessings that he's brought me. And we see how it kind of gives a scale and, an, and sort of this focus that we can start to think about things. The first four commandments are all connected to God and our worship of him and a structure of even our living after him and that worship. Then he goes on for the other six command to focus on our relationship with the world around us. We begin things with God and we move as we go on down the list towards our inner thoughts and being as we look at the world around us. What's quite interesting is the world in which Jesus lived was structured in this way. The Jewish world, particularly in the first century, focused itself around the Ten Commandments is a list of priorities. They began setting up their values around God and then family, then the light, their life, and then sex, and then property. Jesus ends up actually teaching through these things and giving emphasis to certain ones in particular ways that make sense when we see that Jesus has come, in his own words, to be the fulfillment of those things. But I'd suggest that most of us probably have not structured our lives in this sort of way in being. Sadly, in many cases, for many of us, we actually value things in much different orders. And, and all of us slightly differently as individuals, but culturally, we certainly value money and sex over human life. We certainly uh, would say that you should dishonor your family at the expense of being seen and elevated in culture. We would say, as a culture, that one of the last things that we should worry about is what's going on out there and who this God guy is because there's other more pressing things. That's what our culture teaches us. That's what we live in and are steeped in and if we're not careful those things begin to hijack our priorities and build a tower that's going to fall down as opposed to where God starts which is putting himself as our foundation and then working to build everything towards our inner selves in a particular way that would bring that flourishing I mean just stop for a second Ask yourself, what are my priorities? What do you put the most of your effort into? What consumes your daydreaming? How do you spend your money? If I'm honest, if I ask those questions, my priorities are a mess. They certainly don't line up with the way that God has brought things to be. But when I have been successful at putting things in the right way and place and time, I've seen good things come of it. This is what the Ten Commandments invite us into. But there's more than that. 
The Ten Commandments, we have to remember, are also something that points us to a need for a Savior. For those of us who are followers of Jesus already, we sometimes forget this, but it's a really important thing to think about. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to hear the reason behind these commands. And to help you with that, I want to tell you a story. This is a story of some pastors who moved to Indonesia to reach what was at one point one of the most unreached people group in the, for the sake of Jesus in the world. They went to try to reach the uh, Taliabo people in Indonesia. So these two pastors and their families decided they would move to Indonesia and they would begin to live amongst the people so that they could teach them who Jesus was. And as they did that, they began to learn the cultures of the people. They began to learn the language of the people. And as they were trying to navigate this, they didn't really know where they could start and and where they would end. But they knew, well, maybe the best way to do it is like the Bible did. And we, we start at the beginning and we work towards Jesus. And so they started in the book of Genesis and began to explain to the people who God is and, and what he did. And, and they found out that, well, they weren't really getting it. It took them a while. But then all of a sudden they got to the Ten Commandments. And as they got to the Ten Commandments, they, they sat down and they explained what all these things are, what was right and wrong in God's eyes, and then they closed the lesson. And the pastors went home, but later that night a group of villagers came to visit them at their hut. And the reason they came is because they had big concerns all of a sudden. And one of the men said to one of the pastors, he said, we are in big trouble with God because God's law tells us not to kill, but we have killed other men. God's laws tell us not to steal, but we have stolen. We have broken God's commandments, but we did not know that God had commanded these things. From now on, we will keep God's commands. Now fast forward a few weeks, these people have gone out and they've, they've tried to do this, but guess what happened? They screwed it up. They couldn't do it. A couple of weeks later, they came back and gathered the pastors together and these uh, village leaders came and they said, you know what, now we're in really big trouble because we actually know what God commands and we still keep on breaking them. What we learn when we see the commands of God and the teachings is that there is right and wrong in God's eyes. There is a way that things should be prioritized. There is things that bring flourishing and there's things that bring shipwreck to our lives. And when we go against that, we experience the hardship. But when we try to live up to it, we realize our failings and that we cannot live up to that standard. And so there must be something better. There must be something else because we're going to keep wrecking it. If you were to go back to J.I. Packer's analogy of the Ten Commandments being like an owner's manual, he says that if the Ten Commandments are like the handbook of how to live, when we ignore it, we will end up just like a car that's operated incorrectly. We will break down and die. But the good news is that God didn't just give us a handbook for how to operate in life. He also gave us a repair manual. And not only did he give us a repair manual, but he also gave us the repairman. God didn't just look at his people and say, too bad, you operated outside of my rules, so now you got to go and deal with it. No, instead he gave us a repair manual and life's mechanic. 
The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He said, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Because God knew we would screw up, he always chose to lead us to a place where he could help us get out of our mess. God said, by disobeying these commands, you will bring death, not just physically, but spiritually. These things will come into your lives. But the good news is, I'm not just going to send you on living that way. Instead, I'm going to send myself, my son, to show you a better way, to sacrifice himself in your place so that if you would trust him, if you would follow him to the best that you can, then you will be saved and you can experience life anew again. That leads us full circle to why we look at these commands as something that we get to do. We don't follow these commands because they lead us to God, but just like how God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt, God has brought us out of slavery to our sin, to a place where we have wholeness, because of what Jesus has done and through the presence of his spirit in our lives. And so then instead of commands being a list or some type of bondage, they're an expression of our love for him. They're a way of being so we can be deeper and deeper into his presence. Jesus told us this is the way that it would be. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And we get to do that joyfully. Why? Well, we love God because he first loved us. This is the things the scripture teaches. And when we come to that place, we end up not seeing this as this weight that's been put on us. We don't see it as a, a list of endless shame in our lives, but we see it as an opportunity to know and live with him. And might I suggest that, that not only does trying to live up to these commands bring a wholeness to our lives, but using the, this list of Ten Commands can be a spiritual discipline. It could be a practice to help you evaluate your own spiritual health. We can use this list to hold up to our lives, holding them side by side, as a comparison to see where am I doing it right? Where am I missing the mark? How am I not being like Jesus? How am I not in tune with what the Spirit of God wants? It's really easy. I've, I've put a chart together that, that you, could, you could use, and I know it's small. You can take a picture of it or you can ask me for it and I'll send it to you. But th there's a list, and I just put the Ten Commandments with 10 a little more than 10 evaluative questions, but questions that go with each. Let me read them for you for those who can't see it. So God's given this, this command of there should be no other gods before me. Well, good evaluative tool in our spiritual life then is to say, have I made something more important than God? That's a good starting place. God said there should be no idols or images well, what's an idol? Well, in Moses' days, it was an actual physical carving which was used to represent a god or different gods to be worshipped. 
What's the problem with an idol? The problem with an idol is it reduces who God is down into some tiny man-made thing. So ask yourself, am I reducing who God is in my thinking? Have I tried to force God into a box of the way that I think? In the same way, do not misuse the name of the Lord. As Christians, we know Jesus has said, you are to be my ambassadors. You are to be, represent my name in the world. So ask yourself, have I been an adequate representative of God? We can take the more literal thing. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Am I wrongfully invoking the name of God in my conversation? Keep the Sabbath holy. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to put our trust in who God is and rest from the busyness and days of life to, to, to set aside time to worship him to honor him, to appreciate the things he's done. Well, am I doing that? Is that a part or a rhythm of my life? Honor mom and dad. Well, do I honor mom and dad? Maybe you don't have a mom and dad around. We can still take the, the thinking of this meaning. Mom and dad are who? The authority figures in our lives. Am I honoring the authority figures that God has brought into my life as a way of honoring him? Don't murder well, Jesus would later go on to clarify in the Sermon on the Mount, murder is equivalent of holding anger against somebody else. That's an act of murder when he's dealing with the heart level. Are you holding on? Am I holding on to anger against someone? Am I hoping for someone's downfall? Do I really wish my competitor will lose so that I can win? No adultery. Are you being sexual with someone besides your spouse? Are you watching porn? Are you lusting after someone else? Are you having affairs physically, mentally, emotionally? Is my mind and my heart and my physical desires being driven towards someone besides the one I have made a covenant commitment to in the eyes of God? No stealing. Now, most of us probably wouldn't do that, but do we have greed? Right? These are the things God asks. Put this into a heart context. No false testimony. Am I being deceptive? At work, at home, at school. No coveting. Am I bitter over God's blessing of other while minimizing my own blessings that I've received from God? Now again, the ideal of all of this is that we would live it out. And that we would live it out to the best we can for the thriving of God's creation. Of our own life, of the life of those around us. But realistically, we all know that we'll fail. And so what we need to do as wise followers of Jesus is to take opportunities to be contemplative. One of the things that I think we really miss out doing is actually stopping to think as people who follow Jesus. I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but there's far too often that I hear commands and what God wants for me, and I go, yeah, oh, I failed. I guess I'm going to move on. Instead, what Jesus invites us into is to really stop and think, to really, to, to really spend time with him, getting to know what's really going on in our hearts so that we, by his power, can remove those things to draw closer into his presence, to experience more freedom and flourishing in our lives. I encourage you, take time to, 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 to bring in this sort of discipline 
It's really easy. You don't have to sit with the whole 10 questions. Maybe, maybe you want to, but you could even just at the end of every day saying, hey, where did I miss the mark today? At the end of the week, hey, where did I fail to stack up to the priorities that God has given me? Where have I missed out on experiencing his presence because I've walked away from what he wants to bring into my lives? And as we do that, we begin to draw closer to God. We begin to see what his heart is, where he wants to bring flourish. And we begin to see the things that he wants to carve out of our lives so that he can bring fresh things in. It's a real gift as we do this. This is something that I've been trying to intentionally practice over the last probably nine months to a year. This has been a discipline that I have been trying to bring in more. I've, I've, I've tried it. I've poked at it over the years. But as I've been bringing this in, it is really amazing how it's changed my way of thinking and being. It's amazing how it's actually brought me from places of shame when I do wrong to a place of going, this is an opportunity to meet with God, to see and experience his heart. It's brought me into a place where I can reduce my anxiety from worrying about how I can go about being and doing things in the world to saying, ah, God, you've given me a book. Help me to see how I can follow your guide through today. Begin, perhaps begin your day asking God that. God, help, to reveal, help me to see, reveal to me the things that I can do to keep in step with you. And then at the end of the day, stop and say, hey God, where did I miss out? Where have I been out of line? God, thank you that you died for me. Thank you that you gave yourself for me so that I can come into your presence even though I've missed out on those things. And then help me tomorrow to take the next right step in following you. I'd like to offer us an opportunity to do that today. As you, you know, if you've been here for a while and if you're, this is your first time, one of the things we do regularly as a church is we take communion. Communion is the opportunity for us to reflect on the fact that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again. That his body was broken, that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be united with him. This is a great opportunity for us to, to mourn the reason that Jesus had to die. It's a good thing for us to stop and think about what we have done even today that was the reason for him to go to the cross. And so we prepare ourselves for communion. The scripture actually says that we shouldn't take communion in an unworthy manner, that we should actually stop to think. So let's stop and think, where are the places my life's out of line with God? Take this opportunity to, to think through those different commandments where you're out of line with him and then confess those things to him, but then also receive the fact that he's already paid the price for it. For just a moment, we're just going to have a, a period of silence and I just want you to stop and think. Bring these things before God and then I'm going to pray. And as I pray, our communion servers are going to come up, our band's going to come up and, and lead us uh, through, through a song, Jesus Paid It All, to remind us of what, what he's been. And I just want you, in your own time, we're going to do it a little bit differently today, in your own time, come up to one of the stations, receive the bread, which represents the Jesus body, which was broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the cup, which represents the blood that was poured out so that you could be washed clean. 
and then take and eat and drink, remembering and declaring what Jesus has done for you. And do that in your own time where you are. So let's just take a moment, offer to God what he'd have you bring. God, I thank you that you gave us the guide for our lives. And God, we thank you that it goes beyond the Ten Commandments into all that you have taught through your scripture. But Lord, we thank you that that is accessible, that we are capable of, of, of grabbing hold of that so that we can see first and foremost our need for you. And God, we know that we don't live up to your standard. And so I thank you. I thank you, Jesus, that you came to die in our place for the death that we deserve to experience. God, I thank you that you knew that that was what was needed. And God, that you gave humanity time to realize we couldn't live up to your standard so that we would know that we could come to you and that we would be drawn into who you are. And God, I thank you that you've given us a way now to, to see these things not as condemning, even though they do before we've come to know you, Lord, but we can see your commandments as freeing to lead us towards flourishing, to help us set our priorities, to help us orient our lives around you to become more like who you are. Lord God, I confess there's so many places in my life that I have missed being with you, where I have missed living up to your center, where I have missed getting to, to help bring flourishing to the lives of those around me. And so God, I just ask that you'd forgive me. I thank you, Jesus. You already went to the cross for me. And I ask, Lord God, for myself and for all our friends and church family here today, Lord God, that we would be able to step into a new way of being, using the commandments to, to reflect on you and your goodness, using them to help restructure our lives so that we could bring more of you into our own lives and into the lives of those around us. God, I pray that we would be a changed people who would go out into the world proclaiming that there is a better way and that it was all made possible because of you. So Lord, now as we take the body, the bread and the cup and we think about your body broken and your blood poured out, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you that you've paid it all. We thank you that you've already won the victory. We thank you that you bring peace to our soul. We thank you that there's so much to look forward to and have hope for in the future. And Lord, we pray this all in your mighty name. Amen.